Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in the Grinnell College Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say that we have Michael McKenzie on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Auto Dicks and the First World War, Grotesque Humor, Camaraderie, and Remembrance. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So um, I, uh, I'm i an art historian. I studied art history at uh, in graduate school at the University of Chicago, uh, where I studied, I specialized in German modernism. So early 20th century German modernism, expressionism, uh, both before and after the First World War. And, um, and since then, I got my PhD in 1999. And since then, I've been teaching um, art history, basically, at small liberal arts colleges, um, first in Indiana. And then two years ago, I moved to Grinnell, uh, to Grinnell College and to Grinnell, Iowa. Um, my wife, Annie Harris, got a position here at Grinnell and is now the president of Grinnell College. And, um, and I... Um, just recently was uh, awarded tenure. Oh, uh, wow, that's great. Congratulations. I'm now a tenured member of the faculty in the art history department. Um, And so I I said that my specialty was um, German modernism. But of course, I've taught a wide variety of things, all kinds of modernism, 19th and 20th century European modernism. and also I teach, uh, I teach a course soon. I will be able to say I teach two courses on the art of India and South Asia. Um, and so I really enjoy doing that. And my next, my newest course will be a course actually on modernism in India and South Asia. So kind of uh, the 20th century up to and including contemporary art. That's cool that you get to branch out into other things. I mean, I, I was a professor and I, I taught Russian history and I remember there was a certain point at which I was like, I don't know if I really want to teach just this anymore. Right. It is, I will say it is one of the great advantages of teaching at a small liberal arts college is that we're able to, we have the privilege of and are even encouraged to branch out a little bit, to stretch ourselves um, and to learn together with the students. That's really what I love about the job. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, classroom learning with them. I was going to say, I know, in the, at least I think I know, in the German system, when you, you, you have a PhD, what we call a PhD project, and then you have this second thing that I think is called the Habilitationsschrift, that has to be about something else. <laughs> it's something else within the same field. Yeah, right. right. But, uh, yeah, but... yeah, we don't do that in the United States. But anyway, I should also say that I never took an art history class when I was at Grinnell, but I audited several. Oh, and, and I loved auditing classes when I was there because you can go hear these smart people talk about these smart things. And, um, you know, they, it was it, it fit into my schedule and I just really enjoyed doing it. I, I think I learned a lot, which is how I know who Otto Dix is. So this leads me yeah. to my next question. Um, why did you write this book about Otto Dix in the First World War? Um, well, so Otto Dix, uh, for those who don't know, um, Otto Dix is probably one of the most um important um in, yeah i would say one of the most important artists of the post-war period in germany post first world war so in the 1920s um 
And he was a representative. He's a, he's a good example of what the Germans call Neue Sachlichkeit, uh, new objectivity. So a really a sort of um, dispassionate, um, disabused, non-idealistic um, uh, representation of contemporary life in all of its kind of um, false glamour, right? And he loved to kind of expose the falsity of the glamour a little bit. And, and um, so he got some notoriety for that. Oftentimes, he did a lot of portraits. Um, and, and his portraits were often sort of uh, bo just bordered on caricature, right? And you really yeah. you look at these portraits of, uh, of fancy people and you wonder how it could be that they actually paid him to paint their portrait. Right? <laughs> and some of them actually said, like, some of them were mad. Some of them said like, no, I'm not paying you for this. Um, and yeah, you. so it's always a good idea to kind of look at the work of the person you're hiring to paint your portrait before you. Yeah, that's good. Just know. Um, and, so, and so, you know, he's a fascinating person. Contradictory, um, cantankerous, uh, um, you know, sharp to the point of caricature. Um, and he had fought in the First World War. And uh, I knew that this isn't necessarily the most important part for most people of his work, but he made a lot of, he painted a lot of pictures in the 1920s about his experiences in the First World War. Um, and it was, you know, it's pretty clear from looking at them that they, the, that the experience made a, a big impact on him uh, emotionally, spiritually, of, of course, as it would have to. Um, and I had in graduate school, I had had the opportunity to write some, some and publish some short catalog essays about some of these works um, and some of his other pictures. He painted a lot of watercolor portraits of prostitutes where it was another thing that he liked to paint pictures of again prostitution being a kind of example of that false glamour of the of what we call weimar weimar germany um and uh and so you know i was fascinated by these but i had never really wanted to write a, I, I never wanted to write a book about him right he's like the most important figure of the period um it's kind of out of fashion to write monographs books about just one individual artist in art history anyways um and so i never wanted to do this um but i had i i read something um, in the, um, you know, along the way while I was teaching that really sort of sparked my interest and made me, made me rethink his work, made me go back to it and rethink it. And, and um, I felt like it gave me a new insight kind of from an unexpected direction, from an unexpected source about his work. And so, um, and so I dug into it a little bit deeper um, and I could, that's another story. I could tell that story. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish you would. You said you kind of... I, I'll speak in the modern parlance. You had a different take on it, or you gained yeah. some insight about it yeah, that yeah. made you want think. Well, oh, I can actually make a contribution. That's always a very interesting yeah. point in a scholar's life. If you could talk about yeah. that, that would be great. Yeah, and and an exciting one, and one that doesn't necessarily for me, anyways, doesn't you know come because I don't have graduate students. And I'm not doing research on one individual topic all the time. Um, you know, I don't. I I'm not thinking about this. I'm not thinking about German art in the 1920s all day long. And so um, it was kind of exciting for me to go back to this period um, and do this work. So, yeah, so, you know, um, at one point about you know, now about um, 12 years ago, maybe more, um, uh, my wife, Anne and I, you know, we'd had, we'd had three children and our youngest was, I think, two years old. So we had three kids, two, four and six years old. 
And, um, you know, we were no longer completely overwhelmed by having infants in the house. You know, for mm -hmm. the first time in, in, in six years, we didn't have an infant in the house. And Anne said to me, you know, we should read something in the evening <laughs> after they go to bed. Um, something, you know, intellectual. And I said, you know what, that's a great idea. And she suggested Mikhail Bakhtin, this Russian literary theorist yeah. um, from the 20s, a uh, really interesting person. And so we read his book about about language and humor and grotesque realism and um and uh basically the thesis of the book was that in the late middle ages um people the common people had this kind of way of they had a certain sort of speech that they would use uh like on market days and so on that was filled with um, grotesque imagery that was funny and based on the, the the realities, essentially the realities of the human body, right? So, and we were talking about like fart jokes. Yeah, right? he wrote he, he wrote a book that I think I maybe even countered at Cornell called Rabelais in His World. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. And he great. wrote if I, if people know who Rabelais is, you'll know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So <laughs> like exaggeration, like exaggeration, grotesqueness, and and humor, and and um, Bechtin's thesis was. All of this was in aid of warding off the fear of death, right? So, mm -hmm. so making jokes about the body and its fallibility and its and the fact that it dies, that it gets sick, that it gives birth, that it consumes, that it defecates, all of these things, right, were the basis of this humor that was there to ward off death. And I and and it struck me like a thunderbolt. I said, Otto Dix, right? That's what he's doing. He's making um, these kind of exaggeratedly grotesque images of the, of, for example, disabled veterans from the war, people who had been grotesquely wounded and lost limbs, but but he makes these pictures of them that are in some way deliberately funny, um, and the humor comes from the grotesqueness. And I always wondered, like, why would anybody do that? Um, and it struck me, it, it was to ward off the fear of death. And, and I thought to myself, you know, soldiers in the trenches in the First World War, I bet they had a language that they developed, a slang that they developed amongst themselves that relied heavily on what Bakhtin called the lower bodily stratum. Everything, everything from eating to defecating to, to you know, fornicating, all these things that you do um, that isn't your brain, that is the lower part of your body. I bet they had a language that was based on um, jokes made about the body in order to ward off death because who needed to ward off the fear of death more than they did. And so I looked into it and not only did they have, not only had they developed this sort of humorous um, slang, this language, but people at the time were fascinated by it. And so uh, all these linguists and just normal people wrote these books, these kind of glossaries of all of the sort of slang terms that soldiers, whether they were um, German or English or French or, or what have you, that they, they all developed these vocabularies and, and people published books about them, like collectives of them, collections of them, excuse me. Um, and, and along the way I found out, and so I knew I had something, right? I knew that I was, that I was yeah. onto something. Um, and along the way I found out that, that Otto Dix himself, even in his sort of field journal, 
um, at one point just wrote down a whole list of these words, like all the all the words that he that he could remember. He was he'd been wounded. One of the many times that he was wounded, he was recovering in the um, field hospital and, and to, I guess, to entertain himself, he wrote down all of these terms that he could remember. Um, so, so not only were people in general fascinated by it, but he was. And so my, the thesis of the book um, is essentially that uh, after the war, he kind of developed a visual equivalent of this sort of language, right? He used, um, he kind of translated these grotesque terms uh, based on the, the, the fallibility of the body into humorous, grotesque images of the body in order to, I think, essentially reach out to other veterans and say, you know, here we are, we survived and you're looking at these pictures. I made these pictures. We all remember what this was like and, and we're still here. Um, and we have this in common. And, and importantly, this is an important part. Other people don't understand it, right? People who weren't there don't get it. Um, they won't get this humor, but we get it. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's communicating directly with fellow veterans, some of whom are fellow artists, some of whom are art critics, right? There were, that was one of the things about the First World War is that because everybody fought that included artists, poets, writers, yeah. um, future art historians and art critics, uh, uh, et cetera. So I think he's he's talking directly to them in, in some of these humorous pictures. Yeah, I, I, just to give a small anecdote, I, I have written a little bit about the Vietnam War and I, I remember reading this transcript uh, where uh, some people who had committed a war crime, uh, they, they said, well, we wasted him. And the people mm -hmm. talking to him did not know that. They didn't have that expression. They really didn't know what it meant. They said, what do you mean, wasted? And he said, well, that means we killed them. And this was obviously a kind of ironic distancing. It meant we wasted his life. His life was a waste. Yeah. And, and, and they had to have it explained to them. So this argo kind of developed. And yeah. I, it, yeah. it doesn't surprise me at all that the Germans had um, such, such a thing. And another thing I want to, uh, just pause on for a second is the word grotesque this has a kind of mm -hmm. technical meaning in art history is that right it actually has a couple of different meanings in art history and so i actually have to there's a moment in the book where i engage in this sort of tedious um you know explanation of like <laughs> I, I mean this i don't mean that yeah. um because it, it actually has several meanings and the, the the meaning that i'm using is um is exaggeration to the point of um to the point of humor essentially yeah. right and and there's this um there's this great uh walter benjamin the 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 kind of critical theorist uh german theorist in the early in the 1920s and 30s who adored the french poet charles baudelaire uh poet and, and sometimes art critic um has this kind of reading of Baudelaire where he talks about grotesque humor and and essentially slapstick, right? Because because Benjamin is fascinated by like Charlie Chaplin. Everybody loves Charlie Chaplin yeah. at this time, and he said, you know, basically the the humor here comes from us watching somebody trip and thinking to ourselves, and we laugh and we think like, I would never do that. I would never be so dumb as to trip over you know a crack in the sidewalk. Um, and we know we shouldn't laugh, but it's already too late because we've already laughed. Right. And that that for him is is um, grotesque humor. And 
that's what Dix means, right? Because he has these pictures of these of these veteran disabled veterans, like they're sitting around after the war playing cards, right? For there's this picture, for example, of three three veterans sitting around playing cards, kind of reliving the good old times, how they used to play cards in the in their dugouts in the trenches to while away the hours. Um, and they just look they look ridiculous, right? Because uh, for example, and the, the longer you look at it, the more humorous and ridiculous details you see. Like you realize one guy seems to be holding his cards in his hand, but he's lost both of his arms. So it's actually his foot um, that he's holding the cards and it's like propped up on the table like a hand, but he's had his pant leg refinished as a sleeve, right? So it's got like a cuff link and a, and a cuff and the, the cuff of his jacket. Um, and you don't realize at first that it's his foot uh, and, and um, where his legs should be are actually like the table legs and peg legs that look like each other. And that's funny too, uh, and so on. And of course, art historians, it was very important for a long time for art historians to say, look here, he shows how, he's showing how badly they've been abused by the system, the system of militarism, and then the system that kind of threw them away after the war. Um, and it's his, it's his empathy that's presented as caricature. And my take on it is no. He's not being empathetic to them. He's essentially laughing at them and saying, like, I wouldn't, like, I, I managed to come out without getting my legs blown off, my arms blown off, right? You, that's, that's funny to him in a way, mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think the rest of us cannot understand and, and shouldn't understand, right? I yeah, think I think that's right. Yeah. I, and I want to be clear. I'm not justifying his humor. I think it's actually really kind of an unpleasant aspect of his character. But the pictures are undeniably funny in a way that makes us really uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's, and, I think that's a very good point, is that it's kind of impenetrable to us, but to people who are yeah. there. And so th this is very interesting, because I, I know I was doing some reading before this interview, and sometimes people will compare his uh, series, of, I think it was Prince, called Der Krieg, The War, to Goya's yeah. Disasters of War. So you would say that's just not an appropriate comparison. I mean, I, I, yeah, it is. Yes, he, he clearly was trying to make an updated version of the disasters of war. There's no uh -huh. doubt about that. Um, I, I do have a chapter about that portfolio. There was like, he made 50 etching um, prints, uh, uh, each one more kind of horrific than the last images of the war. Uh -huh. um, and it's it is it is one of the most powerful documents of the First World War or any war ever. Yeah. Uh, and it and it is often shown, but it's but it's always exhibited as his kind of protest against the senselessness of the war. And I think actually that um, I think that that's a misunderstanding of of how the whole generation viewed the war. That's a that's a post Vietnam yeah. understanding. Right. The, 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 the idea that um, soldiers come out of the war and they and they're they think that the war was senseless. I'm not even sure that that many Vietnam veterans um, feel that way about mm -hmm. the war. But the general public thinks that that's how veterans feel is that they've been tricked. I often see that word that they were tricked into fighting the war uh, and now they're bitter about it. Um, and I think actually what happens uh, and a lot of, our, of historians have, have said this, this isn't my insight, but um, in Germany, especially in Germany, because they lost, right? So the usual kind of explanation for why we fought the war was because we were going to win it. 
doesn't really, you know, they yeah. don't have access to that easy explanation. So they have to, they have to say to themselves, they have to find a reason why they fought it, why they did this. It has to be meaningful in some way. And I think that there are a lot of ways in which those prints, those 50 images are trying to stake out for Dixon people who thought like him, uh, and I can explain what I mean by that, um, what the war meant for them, why it was meaningful for them, uh, and what they take away from it. Yeah, um, please, please And explain. that was very yeah. important to people. They, they needed, they, they couldn't, you can't do that and then spend the rest of your life saying, well, that was senseless and I was tricked into doing that. No, it has to have been meaningful in some way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so how, how did they uh, make this uh, kind of uh, statement of meaning? You said how Dix did it. How did they do that? Yeah. Well, um, so Dix, a little bit about Dix. You know, he grew up uh, in, a, in a, an industrial part of southern Germany in Saxony. Um, and uh, he grew up in a, and actually this is, he grew up in a working class family. And that's actually pretty unusual for artists, right? Most of them, um, because it, it takes a certain amount of privilege to, to pursue that career, to be trained that way. So most artists in, in that time weren't working class. So he was a little bit unusual in that. Um, and like most people from that milieu, he was a social Democrat, right? That was, or rather he didn't identify as a social Democrat, but that was the kind of everybody, everybody around him did. His family, uh, everybody he knew. And, you know, social Democrat in Germany at the time, that was a pretty mainstream party. Right? Yeah. This, this was a mainstream party. It's not like in America today where we think, People want to accuse social democrats of somehow being on the fringe, right? That's a that's a pretty center left party then and and still today in Germany. Um, and so I think uh, and so I part of how I wrote this book was to look at what other social democrats, what 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 veterans groups that identified as social democratic veterans groups, how they talked about the war and what it meant to them. Right. And what it meant to them was a kind of working class camaraderie um, that was particular to enlisted men and did not include officers who were generally middle class or, or aristocrats. Right. And so um, that, it, it, the, and there, the meaning of the war didn't come from hating the French or hating the British or anything, any opposition to the enemy. Um, if anything, they felt a kind of solidarity, even with the soldiers on the other side, because they were all working class soldiers, they were essentially doing the work of war. They've been employed by the capitalist class to, to do the work of war um, and, and under arduous circumstances. And so they built this camaraderie that came from that. Um, and I see a lot of ways in that imagery, especially in the, port, in the war portfolio, um, which he did after the kind of grotesque caricature collages that I was describing a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I see a lot of imagery in that portfolio that speaks to, that that echoes the way that social democratic veterans groups talked about camaraderie and talked about the war. Um, and for example, this is an example that I that I um, uh, from three images that I analyzed in the book. There are a lot of images of exhausted soldiers in that portfolio. Um, not a whole, there are very, very few images of people fighting, almost no images of actual hand-to-hand -hand combat or, 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 or violence, right? Nobody firing weapons. 
but lots of imagery of, of soldiers being exhausted. Um, and if and and that was something that the social democratic veterans groups allowed themselves to acknowledge was that they could be exhausted by their experiences of the war, like just physically and, and mentally and spiritually exhausted by it. But they were very proud of this. They never broke. Um, they never laid down their arms. They never um, they never just gave up, right? Uh, they they continued to fight not because of a cause they believed in, but because essentially because that was the because they had each other's backs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they stuck together through this exhaustion. The far right in Germany in the 1920s, they never acknowledged physical exhaustion, right? To them, their story of the war was um, that, that they lost the war, not because it was mismanaged and certainly not because they, they gave up, but because they were stabbed in the back mm-hmm. by you know, various, various groups. This is the famous stab in the back legend, right? Yeah. Whether it was the social Democrats or or Jews or industrial profiteers, um, war profiteers, whoever it was, they stabbed them in the back and that's why they lost, right? Dix, Dix and, uh, and, and social democratic veterans groups, they never believed that, they never talked about that, right? They talked about their own physical exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of that actually in the, in the imagery. How was um, Dix's work received at the time? Let's hold off on the Nazis for a second, but uh, we'll uh-huh. get to that. But how, how, what did people think about his work when it first came out? Um, uh, they, they, it was it was controversial. It divided people, um, and uh, and and this is a to me an important part of the the sort of story that i'm telling again this was this was known but but for me it kind of fits in with this larger kind of puzzle that i'm trying to put back together um a lot of the critics who hated his pictures of the war were older too old to have fought in the war and a lot of the critics who then came to his defense and said no no this is this is what it was like they were fellow veterans Right. And so they recognized, I think, what he was trying to do. And they said, and there's this, this great line that uh, one critic used in, in writing about this. He said, and I'm going to I'm going to translate the German term um, Frenchfein, uh, the, yeah. the sort of pig at the front to the um, American word grunt. He said, that's just how a grunt at the front paints. Uh-huh. Right. That's what that's what it looks like from our perspective. Right. In the trenches. Um uh, and I, and and what they what they were arguing about was the kind of exaggeratedly grotesque um, realism, right? To use Bakhtin's word, right? Grotesque realism mm-hmm. and its humor. Um, yeah. So older critics hated that. Critics later, critics on the right hated that. Um, and you know, his fellow veterans, especially especially left of center. Um, uh, they they got it right. I would just say they got it, and they they came to his defense mm-hmm. um, about it. So let, let's move on to what happens in 1933 and so on and so forth. What what happens to Dix once the Nazis come to power? How does he react to it? What what does he think about it? Well, so actually, before you know, before, let's hold the Nazis off for just okay, a little right. longer. Let me tell this. Let me right, tell yeah, this. Please um, go ahead. The story about a, a really big painting that he made. Um, clearly uh, intended for public display 
Right. And this is part of my story too, is that um, if I, if I can just kind of back up here a little bit, sure. Um, Dix is often written about as though he were a kind of isolated individual who's just kind of wrestling with his own demons or, um, or preoccupied with his own preoccupations in his studio, you know, uh, kind of occupying this sort of moral high ground about the war. Um, the point of my book is, is actually to, to, to kind of return him to the public discussion about the war in Germany and about what the war meant. So it's really a, a book about what happens in the 1920s and early yep. 1930s. Um, and I think at every step, at every kind of moment in his career where he, where he makes another major work about the, the war, Dix is intervening in some kind of public discussion, oh. specifically about what it meant to people, right? And, mm-hmm. and, um, and his position, again, isn't a, a unique one. It isn't an unusual one. It's actually one shared by, you know, a lot of center-left veterans groups. Um, so it makes sense that he paints a big painting to, to, to be displayed in the public eye. So he paints this big painting called The Trench, and it is a picture of Oh, yes, of I, know, I know this, yes, like, I know this. Yeah, all these dead bodies uh, lying at the bottom of a, the muddy bottom of a trench. Nobody's alive in the painting, um, and it's pretty, it's pretty awful. It's lost now, and I'll come to that, but so we only have black and white reproductions, but apparently the color was lurid, um, the way it was painted was lurid, right? And there's any, and he manages to get this very, very important museum in Cologne to buy it and to display it. And there's this public outcry. There's this huge controversy about it. And some people, some critics on the right actually kind of get a hold of this. And this may sound familiar, right? But they're, they're kind of pursuing these culture wars, right? They're, they're, they, they make political hay out of these kind of cultural issues about like, you know, what kinds of pictures get exhibited about the war. Um, and they managed to get it taken down. They managed to force this, this museum in Cologne to, to sell the picture back to, to Dix. Um, and, uh, and his dealer, his art, his gallery dealer kind of shops this painting around for a long time. One of the things that he does with it is he sends it to exhibitions organized by pacifists. And so that's how Dix kind of gets this reputation that is so important after the Second World War of having been a pacifist, of, of making anti-war art because he's a, a pacifist. And he himself said, I'm not a pacifist. That makes no sense. Um, and that was a pretty fringe position in Germany at the time, even after the Second World War, mm-hmm. or the First World War anyways. Um, but it gets exhibited with these um, in these pacifist exhibitions. And then finally, when Dix gets a job teaching painting, history painting in Dresden, um, the museum in Dresden agrees to buy the painting and they immediately put it in storage, right? And so the painting isn't then seen basically for another 10 years, right? It just goes into storage and nobody ever sees it again. Um, and people forget about it. Uh, but when the Nazis come to power, they hate Otto Dix's art for a lot of reasons. It represents everything that they don't like about the Weimar Republic because, because he represents prostitutes, because he represents this sort of false glamour, this cosmopolitanism, um, and not least of all, because his depictions of the war don't celebrate the virtues that they, they don't, Otto Dix doesn't find the same meaning in the war that they wanted to find. He doesn't celebrate the virtues that they want to celebrate. 
right? And so to militarism and ethno-nationalism, he's not interested in that. So they, they hate his work. And so they drag this painting out of storage and they put it on, on exhibit, right? The Nazis do this interesting thing. They organize these exhibitions of de, what they call degenerate art. Um, and they take it all out of public collections. And it's basically a kind of culture war issue for them, like um, where they say, oh, the, the, the kind of cultural elites who run the museums, they're you know, putting one over on us. They think they're better than us because they like this modern art. Um, and normal people don't like modern art. And so they make a lot of political hay out of these exhibitions of, of modern art in which they essentially say, like, this is everything that's wrong with the Weimar Republic is you've got people spending public money um, to put this kind of bad modern art in public museums and force it down our throats because they're elitists and they think they're better than we are. Um, and they get this painting, the trench out, and they they put it on display, right? Nobody's seen it in 10 years, right? They have to dust it off and remind people <laughs> how much they were supposed to hate this painting um, and remind people of the controversy. But some of them never forgot and they never forgave him this. Uh, and so, and in the end, they probably burned this painting, huh. right? They had a bonfire of a lot of, of books and paintings they didn't like. And they probably burned this painting, and that's why it's gone. It's a tragedy. We only have black and white reproductions of it. Yeah, I've seen them, yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the controversy over the Vietnam War Memorial when it first went up, uh, because it's not representational in a, in a kind of direct right. way. You kind of have to think about what it is representing something, if you look at it carefully, Yes. Uh, but yeah. it's not representational in any kind of heroic way. And there was a big kerfuffle over it when it went up. Now, now it's quite beloved, yeah. but but it was, it was yeah. a political football for a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but part of what's made it possible, just to digress, I think part of what made, has made it possible for that to stay and to, be, to become beloved is um, that, that other figurative representations of the war have been, have been created. On the, yeah, they've on been the added. Yes, that's right, they have, right. So you yeah, can both- so, And so people, like, and people are satisfied by that. And, um, but, but, you know, nobody's moved by those sculptures the way they are by Maya Lin's um, memorial. Yeah, no, right? that they thing is find quite the something. names of their their people that they remember and and yeah. um, no, it's it's quite quite something. I mean, it's often the case that in small towns in America that you find war memorials with names all over them, and they're they're all powerful. Sometimes they're nothing yeah. other than a granite slab with names on it. Well, and that was that was pretty standard after the First World War too, yeah. actually. Um, that was a pretty standard sort of form of memorial. And, and um, to kind of come back to, to Otto Dix, some of the really big works that he was able to paint after he got this teaching position. Um, so in the second half of the 1920s and into the early 1930s, I think that um, they were kind of his attempts at creating a sort of public memorial. He even He even had this kind of fantasy that he shared once. He said, like, I'd love to... I'd love to to put this. He made, painted a triptych, right, a kind of three part painting of, of the war um, that looked like a, a sort of um, it had sort of Christ like a, a elements to it, and so on. Um, and I think he he said, you know, I'd love to have this be a public memorial, but you would go into you'd go down into a bunker below ground to look at it, right? It would be like in a, in a bunker, in a trench. Mm -hmm. That's how you would look at it to kind of bring people to this. But he wanted to intervene in the public 
debate about the meaning of the war. And that debate changed over time and, and his art changed, I think, in response to it. Again, people want to present him as this isolated figure, um, but no, he's, he's very, very much in dialogue with uh, what people, was the debates about public memorials in Germany. And there were a lot. There's this, it's often said that, that Germany, the, the Weimar Republic was capable of creating a, a, a war memorial. There wasn't a national memorial, but there were lots. There were in every town had its yeah. um, its individual memorial, right? And some of them, some of them were modern, and some of them were traditional, and and um, but they were all sculpture. He wasn't a sculptor; he was a painter. Right. So to to come back to um, the Nazis, how they got their revenge on him, kind of at the end. Yeah. Um, as soon as they came to power, they did fire him from his teaching position, even though he had tenure. Right. I want to repeat that for my yeah. academic audience. Right. They, even <laughs> yeah. though he had tenure, they fired him, and of course they they had this. You know, they made they found their bureaucratic excuses for doing it because they were very very attached to their bureaucracy, and so they didn't want to do things necessarily unbureaucratically. Um, but at the same time, but they found a, a way to do it. And at the same time, you know, as a, as an academic, he was a civil servant. He was a state employee. And so the, this kind of old, vicious Nazi who had been put in place as the, the kind of um, governor of the state that, that, that Dresden, the Dresden Art Academy was in, um, you know, they sent him, the, the head of the art department sent him a note saying like, you know, I'm trying to fire him. I, you know, I tried to, I tried to reach him, but he wasn't there. I think he's visiting his parents. Um, anyways, in any case, I, like, I wrote the letter and I delivered it to his office. And this Nazi who was the governor of the state notoriously just wrote this mark, uh, this remark in the in the margin of this note and said, why is that swine still alive? Yeah. And this is a guy who had actually been responsible for assassinating politicians during the Weimar Republic. So like when he said, why is somebody still alive? Mm -hmm. He actually literally meant that. Yeah. Right. So um, so maybe Dix was lucky to get off with just being so so what did he do then losing his tenure track his tenure position yeah so so what did he do then what's that i said what did he do then um so he uh he he had married well at that point so i think his wife had a little money and and he lived a, a very bourgeois very middle class um life at that point which was actually really important to him Right. You see, you see, there was a kind of class and uh, aspiration to his career. Um, and so they had built themselves. They built themselves a, a villa, essentially, on um, the shores of Lake Constance and the very the very southern edge of Germany. Um, people often say, you know, so so that he was close enough to Switzerland that he could just sort of slip across the border if it came to it. I, I'm not sure about that. Um and he essentially tried to make ends meet by, by painting portraits again. He went back to portrait painting. Um, and I think, you know, I think financially it was a struggle uh, until, until the war was over. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, despite being relatively old at the time, at the very end of the, the Third Reich, you know, as, as Germany was collapsing at the end of the Second World War, um, they made all the old men and all the 
boys between, you know, around the ages of 13 and 14, they made them all um, put on uniforms and, and defend their hometowns. Right. Um, and so Dix got drafted again. He was put in uniform again and sent to, you know, defend against the advancing armies and um, was captured. He was made a prisoner of war by the French and uh, spent the last months of the war in a prisoner of war camp where his, the, the commandant to the camp knew who he was and, mm. and, you know, gave him some studio space and, and let him paint some pictures. Um, but um, yeah, he ended the second world war as a prisoner of war. Oh, yeah. And so how was his, I, I wouldn't use the word rehabilitation, but that doesn't sound quite right. After the war, how did people see his work? Um, that's a great question. So he, he winds up being important to both um, the East Germans and the West Germans. And he kind of maintains- That's a quite a trick. In, yeah, <laughs> and he, he maintains a foot in both sides. Um, you know, he, he lives, he continues to live in his villa on the shores of Lake Constance in the south of what becomes West Germany. Mm -hmm. um, but he also has a studio in, in Dresden, which is in East Germany that he spends time in painting large wow. pictures. Um, and so he's a figurative, he never becomes an abstractionist. He's a figurative painter uh, at a time when um, abstract painting becomes almost de rigueur in West Germany. And so the East Germans like his work because he's still a figurative painter and they want to exhibit it. And, he, and, and you know, we were able to exhibit, both sides had, had kind of all German art exhibitions. So he can exhibit mm -hmm. his paintings in, East German art exhibitions. Um, and the West Germans like him because um, he's sort of de facto an anti-fascist, uh, an anti-Nazi artist um, because the Nazis hated him. So that's an easy argument to make, right? And he, and he pays a certain you know, professional and personal price. Um, and the Nazis had always said that his work was anti-war, anti that he was opposed to the war. And so that suits the West Germans' ideological purposes very well. So both sides like him, and it becomes really important for both sides, almost in competition with each other, to claim him as uh, a progressive and anti-war yeah. artist, um, as a... That, that's when he becomes this kind of isolated figure, you know, a lone voice in the wilderness in, in Nazi Germany, um, speaking out against militarism. Uh, you know, that it's that becomes those become uh, really good bona fides for his, um, as you say, rehabilitation. I don't know that he even needed to be yeah. rehabilitating. Right. He um, he becomes a very popular well, uh, an artist of the Weimar period. Uh, nobody's really interested in what he's painting in the in the nineteen fifties, right, and, and early sixties. That's not so important to people. Um, but but his work from the Weimar Republic becomes a way of rehabilitating, of, of recapture, reclaiming that period as the you know the part of the real German history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, j just to kind of wrap it up a little bit, this might not be a fair question, but if you wanted to see an Otto Dix print or painting from the Weimar period, where do you go to do that? Are they all over the place or is there a museum or? 
Um, that's a that's so the the ones I'm interested in right there. Um, the the really big triptych is in is in Dresden, right? And so as part of this kind of claiming of of Dix for East German history, as an anti-fascist and anti-militarist, um, the museum in Dresden buys that big triptych from him, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so it's there, and um, they've cleaned it up. It's on it's got given pride of place in the museum. It's um, it's great to see. Um, another, another, the last big painting that he paints about the war, it's called Flanders. Um, and it's in Berlin. It's in what had been West Berlin. It was always in West Berlin. So it's in Berlin. Um, the, the print portfolios, you know, because, because they were prints, there were, you know, there were a lot of copies of them. So they're in various places. There's one in the smart museum of, of art in, in, on the campus of the University of Chicago. That's where I first saw it, um, even as a graduate student, when I was able to, you know, like I said, write some and publish some essays about some of the prints. Um, there's a copy at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There's a copy at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York. So you can go, and I will say this to your listeners, if you are going to one of those museums, contact the prints and drawings room and, and set up an appointment. It doesn't matter who you are. You don't have to be a, an art historian. You just be, you know, just a visitor to the museum during, you know, weekdays, um, business hours, go and ask them, they will bring that out for you. And you really can go through those wow. prints one by one. That you can look at any cool. prints. They have. Yeah. I mean, I, like if, if you've gone to, if you've exhausted, you know, the MoMA's collection and you want to, or you're just really interested in, in etching an aqua tint. And Otto Dix was a master at this. He, he is one of the best artists to ever practice this art form of, of etching and aqua yeah. tints and engraving. Um, he combines all three on most of the prints. I mean, he's, he is right up there with Goya. Uh-huh. Um, and that was clearly his aspiration, right? Yeah. And, and he achieved it. Um, yeah, go and so if you're interested, you can go see any prints, but go ask for these. Go ask for the war portfolio. They'll bring it out and go through it one by one, all 50 of them. Um, each one is more gripping and more intense and more difficult than and but more masterful in its in its medium than the last. Uh, great way to spend an afternoon. Yeah, I was gonna say I did not know you could do that, but that does yeah. sound like a plan. <laughs> yeah. The, there's a museum in Peron in in France, which is uh, was al- along the one of the the fronts, um, and it's called the Historial. It's a great museum. It's a museum that is mostly collections of of artifacts. So you can see like all of the uniforms and, and equipment that soldiers from every army, both sides, carried into battle, and mm. all these uh, uh, and and but lots of also like propaganda posters or you know plates with the Kaiser's picture on them that that sort of thing um they have a room in which they always have all 50 prints on display right and so you can go there and you can just kind of walk through and just look at them if you're ever in peron in france well michael we've taken up a lot a lot of your time and i I really appreciate this is fascinating i think i could talk to you for about another hour maybe i should come to grinnell and take your courses um but uh let me thank you for that time and thank you for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.